listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled Questions and Answers Number Two. Hello, my radio friends. It's good to have your company today, and I hope you enjoy the program. This time, we're having a follow-up on a previous program where I shall answer questions about what the Bible has to say. The books... Oh, this is question number one. The books of Esther and Song of Solomon are included in the Bible, although the name of God is not mentioned in either of them. How come? Well, the books of the Bible are all considered to have been divinely inspired, just as Second Timothy 3.16 explains. It says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. There is a publication known as the Jerusalem Bible that contains certain books not included in a normal Bible. Included in the Jerusalem Bible are the books of Tobit, Judith, 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees, and Baruch. These books are considered merely historical records. The difference between them and the books of Song of Solomon and Esther are that these two books are considered valuable inasmuch as they are teaching books. They have something to offer because they show what happens when people are faithful and are committed to God. Esther was a faithful young woman who, although had a Jewish background, was committed to a cause as well as being brave. And because of her willingness to be used by God, she was responsible for saving the whole Jewish race of her time. The Song of Solomon, sometimes referred to as the Song of Songs, is a love poem expressing passionate love, fidelity, and commitment between Solomon and his bride, a young, beautiful Shulamite woman. Apart from the young woman being beautiful, she was chaste, and the poem outlines proper relationships between men and women. Above all that, the book serves as an illustration of the depth of God's love for man and the pure relationship there should be between married couples. It also illustrates the love and commitment God has toward man and what sort of commitment should exist between man and God. Just because the name of God is not included in the books of Esther and Song of Solomon does not mean that the characters had no relationship with God, nor does it mean that God did not have a part to play by influencing special outcomes. Now we come to question two, and the question is quite short. It says, what is the rapture? Well, the word rapture has two meanings. Firstly, rapture means a time of pure delight. 
The second meaning is when God's people, the saints, are taken to heaven. Now there is a very popular teaching that's been made popular commencing in the 1970s and 80s by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins who wrote a series of 16 religious novels known as the Left Behind series, netting Tim LaHaye about $20 million. LaHaye was a dispensationalist minister. The novels have been made into very dramatic films. The Left Behind series of novels and films is based on Matthew 24 verses 40 and 41, which are about the sudden return of Jesus. And this is what the verses say. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding corn at a mill, one will be taken, the other left. The problem is that LaHaye and Jenkins have misapplied the meanings of the texts and have introduced a false teaching that proposes that prior to Jesus' actual coming at an unknown time, God's people alive at that time will, be secret, will secretly disappear from planet Earth and will be whisked away to heaven. And the teaching is now known as the secret rapture. The sensational secret rapture has been accepted by many evangelical and Pentecostal Christians as truth. But it has many critics, and I am one of them. John 4, chapter 14, verses 1 to 3 is a statement made by Jesus about how the saints will be taken back to heaven. Verse 3 reads this, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. The King James Version of the Bible puts it this way, I will come again, and receive you unto myself. It's a contradiction that Jesus should die for sinners and go through all the pain, suffering and death, and then when it's time when he and they are to be together, that he couldn't be bothered to come in person to collect those people he redeemed. Yes, there will be a rapture, but not a secret one. In the book of First Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, there's a depiction of the scene of Jesus' coming, and it's not a secret. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall be with the Lord forever. The secret rapture teaching is a deception. It's a false teaching. A teaching that Satan must delight in because although it has a biblical reference, 
he presents an idea that cannot be sustained by other scripture. And the problem is, if you believe one false teaching, it'll be easy for you to believe another and another until what you think is truth is instead a series of deceptions. The only thing I can agree with regarding the secret rapture theory is the unknown time issue. Now we come to question three. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 it says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Why is that? Well, the word yoked implies being together, such as in a marriage or a partnership. Especially in marriage, it is important that each of the partners is singing from the same page, as the expression goes. When one partner has one philosophy, religion or ideology, and the other a different one, there is likely to be a conflict. I have a friend who is a committed Christian. His wife is not. She's an unbeliever and resents her husband's Christianity. Theirs is not a happy home. My friend tries to maintain harmony, but he regards his Christianity as a non-negotiable and his wife regards her non-Christianity also as a non-negotiable. My friend refuses to compromise and his wife refuses to compromise and so there is frequent conflict. When they married, neither were Christians. So at that stage, there was no problem. However, my friend became a Christian and that became the catalyst for their differences. The text in Corinthians gives reasons why people should not be unequally yoked in a partnership. It says, What fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? But you know, there's another reason. If you read the account of when sin entered the world, Satan first tempted Eve to take the forbidden fruit. And in Genesis 3, 6, it says this, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, that was Adam, who was with her, and he ate it. Eve sinned first. Quite possibly there was a conflict raging in Adam's mind when he saw her eat the forbidden fruit. He knew that God had said that by touching or eating the fruit would cause death. But if he remained sinless, he would lose his partner. What a choice! Death or loss of his brother, of his beloved partner. Adam must have loved his wife and chose to have the same fate as she would have. When married couples have one who serves the Lord and the other who doesn't, very often the one who's a Christian will give up 
his or her religious profession in order to simply have harmony with the partner. And I know of a number of couples where this has happened. It is better before getting married to make sure that your intended partner is on the same wavelength as you. And I believe that's what the Apostle Paul was advising. Now we come to question four, and this one is a very much thought about question. The question says, was Peter the first pope? According to many of our Roman Catholic friends, they claim Peter was the first pope, based on Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. This verse says, And Jesus was talking, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, that's pretty clear then, isn't it? The Roman Church has as its insignia the crossed keys, which they claim are the keys of the kingdom. But hang on, wait a bit. Jesus said, I will build my church. And he also said that he would build his church upon this rock. Did he mean Peter by that? Well, the simple answer is no. He meant himself. Well, why not Peter? Peter, like the other apostles, helped build the church, but it wasn't built on any of them. The rock simile refers to God. The word Peter means pebble. So what Jesus meant when addressing Peter was that he, Christ himself, was the foundational rock on which the church was to be built, and also that he, the Christ, was the chief cornerstone. Jesus said to all the apostles that they too had the keys of the kingdom. Read it for yourself, and you can find it in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 18. We're going to go on with this straight after the break.
I'm sharing with you about the question, was Peter the first Pope? And we were just talking before the break about the keys of the kingdom. So what are the keys of the kingdom? Basically, that expression means the gospel message about salvation. So if one were tempted to think that Peter was the one on whom the church was to be built, what would the church be like? Would it be pure and sinless? At the time of Jesus' arrest before the crucifixion, how did Peter act? He acted rashly and whipped out his short sword and attempted to take on the soldiers and others who were part of the arrest party. Rashness is not a good quality on which to build a church. Soon after this, Peter ran for his life, as did the other disciples. He abandoned his Lord. Cowardness is not a good principle on which to build a church. Thirdly, while Jesus was undergoing the mock trial, Peter had been noticed by several people who recognised him as one of Christ's disciples. He denied it and swore that he had nothing to do with Jesus. In other words, he lied through his teeth, bearing what the Ten Commandments call false witness. Lying is not a good quality on which to build a church. Now, if the Roman church exercises these qualities exhibited by Peter, it doesn't inspire me one bit. In fact, in thinking about this subject, I would like to suggest that the Roman church has been one of the most powerful influences against Christianity the world has ever seen. No, Peter was not the first pope. He never regarded himself any different than any of the other disciples. In fact, the fact that the Roman Catholics have claimed him as the first pope is just that. It's a claim. It's about the same as saying, I'm the king of the castle and you're the dirty rascal. There is no biblical evidence to support the claim that Peter was the first pope. And we could go on about this, but Peter himself never, ever made such a claim either. Now, the next question is, what do you think about infant baptism? Well, the word baptism, as used in the Bible, refers to the act of being completely submerged in water as an indication that someone has confessed their sins has accepted the merits of Jesus and wants to live a new life of righteousness. In his discourse with Nicodemus, as recorded in John first no, in John three five, Jesus said this I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Earlier Jesus explained to Nicodemus, You must be born again. Baptism is an external sign, a public witness, that someone has rationally decided to give their life to Christ and that they are sorry for their past mistakes and want to live a new life. In 1 Corinthians 5.17, the Apostle Paul makes this statement, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. One problem with infant baptism is that it is now an established tradition that infants are sprinkled with water or that water is dribbled over their heads. In the past, even in Roman churches, infants were submerged in water in a baptismal font. Some of those babies didn't care for that, especially in the winter, so the practice was changed to sprinkling. Many babies died because of what's known as pedo-baptism. Infant baptism, known as pedo-baptism, is practiced by many religious organizations, including Catholics, Eastern and Oriental Orthodox, Anglicans, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Congregationalists and other Reformed denominations, Methodists and some Nazarenes, and the Moravian Church. Lutherans and Catholics believe that babies are conceived and born sinful and therefore need to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. They believe that through baptism the Holy Spirit works rebirth and creates faith in them and therefore saves them. My comment about that is a child may be born with a sinful nature, but until it sins voluntarily, that is, until it makes a choice to do wrong, it is unaccountable. Baptism by immersion of non-infants is called credo-baptism. That means someone is mature enough to understand why and what about their baptism. Seventh-day Adventists only pra practice credo-baptism by immersion. When someone understands their need of a saviour and commits his or herself to Christ and is prepared to follow him, they may be baptised. Credo-baptism is voluntary. Pedo-baptism is not voluntary, not at least on the child's part. But there is a further issue that needs to be exposed here. A baby has no idea whether or not it wants to follow Christ. Loving parents may have their child baptised, or rather to pass through a ceremony where water is sprinkled on the child in the hope that the child will serve the Lord. There are plenty of people who, as babies, were so-called baptised and yet have chosen not to serve the Lord in any way. But here is the big issue. The child is so-called baptised to ensure its eternal destiny. In other words, the idea is that when is baptised, their eternal life is ensured. But that's garbage. If a pedo-baptised child as an adult lives a wicked life, how can that one involuntary act cover all the voluntary sinful acts that person may have committed? The concept that an infant having been baptised ensures eternal life is wrong. It is a false doctrine. Three once believers 
who turn their backs on Christ are named in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 1.19 says, Some have rejected these, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenius and Alexander. And Paul also mentions Demas doing the same. The Apostle Peter also warns about people who've committed their lives to Christ and then turn away. No, infant baptism is no passport to eternal life. What counts is acceptance of Christ's sacrifice and then to live the Christian life of obedience. Well, we've come to the end of today's program. I hope you've enjoyed this very much. And God bless you, my friends, as you give consideration to what I've shared with you today.